Hello, and welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast. Today we are discussing cantos 16, 17, and 18 of the Divine Comedy. These cantos revolve around interactions with violent sinners from the recent political conflicts in Florence, Dante's home city, and the city from which he was permanently exiled shortly before he began work on the comedy. What is the purpose of a poem aspiring to universality being laced with references to particular local people? people who would have been long forgotten had they not appeared in Dante's poem, as opposed to, say, the Greek mythic heroes or the Caesars in Homer and Virgil. Why does hell have such a political quality, especially given how central and inescapable politics is to human life and human goodness, as Dante conceives of them? We also consider how politics relates to love, desire, and human freedom and the difference between effective rhetoric and just plain lying, and the difference between lying and writing poetry, and if hell is just the ideal city with all God's grace removed, and if hell is a political domain after all or not, and we talk about Francesca again, and there's also more talk about sodomy. It's another fun episode. Now here's Elijah introducing Alex, who's asking the opening question. And here with our opening question is... Mr. Alex Eric. All right. So one of the thing that's, things that has continually come up in our uh, journey with Dante through the circles of hell is that he keeps running into people from Florence, which is his city, and Cantos uh, 16, 17, 18, they all, uh, there's, there's like more references to people from Florence in these violent circles in hell. So I'm just trying to think of like what to make of these references to these people and like what's that supposed to say about the city of Florence and if it has any good meaning for us United States of America citizens in the 21st century. And this question, Alex, is related to our sort of ongoing question of like, what is the relation between politics and the eternal or the particular and the universal or the local and the translocal or something? Right. It's also this sort of, um, there's also like a, a procedural nature to my question because I, I keep reading the book and there are these references and these proper names of these people are given and I'm always having to consult the notes the the notes that hollander gives on these people to try to get the context so i'm thinking about sort of like the universality of the text when it really when it uh references these particular figures that we wouldn't know offhand Mm -hmm. yeah i was thinking while you're reading the first two in a sequence that you started out with you started out with a catalog of great figures from antiquity and from the roman empire and myth you know and ancient heroes and caesars and then as he moved through hell the people he talked to were progressively more like local Mm. political figures from the life of dante like florentine political figures but then in the third and 18 yeah, i believe there's jason 
comes up. Jason is an, as an example in 18. And also a, a different figure who's, I can't remember where she was from. She wasn't from, she was from a play. Yeah. She wasn't like a Florentine political figure. Face. Face is her name. Face. Is her name. Face. Um, so there is that mix of the, the very local and immediate to his life and then the mythological. But once we've gotten moved past the limbo, I think it's only, well, not, not exclusively, but especially lately, it seems like only people from the immediate past or the present of like Italian politics have had the floor, right? That's who gets to speak and like lay out their, like present their personality and their life, I think. Well, in like, uh, in Contra, I think it's 26 of Inferno, Odysseus is kind of the center. Odysseus to speak, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think the pattern that you're noticing is generally true. I mean, the sort of the way I'm thinking about this is, uh, so Eric Auerbach has this essay called Figura, and he kind of talks about, I mean, he's gonna, he gets really nuanced about the way Christianity encourages us to read, and he talks about the difference between figuration and typology, um, and I'm not going to be able to rehearse all of his nuances here, but, but here's a sort of basic idea to think about. The way that Christianity encourages us to read history typologically or figurally. So he makes distinctions between those, like I just said, and I can't really remember them right now. But the point is, if we think of King David, what is King David? On one hand, he's a particular figure with particular particular foibles and particular temptations, right? On the other hand, he's a prefiguration or a type of Christ. So he's simultaneously particular and universal, right? So Christ is the fulfillment of the priest, poet, and king in the sort of uh, orthodox Christian understanding of, of Christ, right? And so David is like the, the earthly king that points to the fulfillment of kingship in Christ. So it's neither a denial, Auerbach, the way he would want to read, he would want us to read David is neither David is particular and he's universal at the same time. He's particular in his sort of details. He's a flesh and blood human in a way, but he's also a symbol of Christ. And that is kind of how I, I'm reading the particular Florin, Florentine characters in here, right? Is that they're particular, but they're also a universal embodiment of flattery or whatever, the wrath, whatever the case might be. I don't know. You just read the Cavalcanti essay on Auerbach essay, Adam. What, what did he say there about that, that particular figure? The Cavalcanti essay was more about the way Dante used language in a way that was like, had very little precursor in medieval literature. So he was talking about the abrupt shifts from tone of the conversation between Dante and Virgil to the tone of the conversation with Cavalcanti to the tone that's then like embedded in the Cavalcanti or the way around the conversation with um, um, Farinata. Thank you. Farinata, the conversation with Farinata and the conversation with Cavalcanti is embedded inside of that. And like the tonal shifts in between. And he was just being like really detailed about the way that Dante was using um figurative language in, in a way there that no one else had done before. I just thought it was really interesting how he laid it out. And he was like really, uh, he can really, <laughs> he's just really amazing ability to like bring out so much from tiny like bits of text, you know, it really made me appreciate the artistry of the whole Inferno a lot more, I think. But 
Yeah, I think he would definitely say, I mean, in that case, like Farnon is type, typed as a figure from a pre-Christian, like, uh, you know, antiquity, or I mean, he's referred to in Aristotelian terms, whatever the translation that Arbach, Arbach's translation calls him magnanimous. I don't think that's the word that Hollander uses, but. But he's a near contemporary with Dante, right? Right. right. He's in the tomb of the heretics. Well, and I guess he's, he's, he's pagan in the sense that he idolized the city state above all else. I think he's like from the previous generation, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he lived in the Christian era. Yeah. I was trying to think about what, but like what uh, magnanimous as a type might might mean. Versus Cavalcanti was like, I don't know what his type would be exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm saying he. Farinata is described as magnanimo in the Italian. In the Italian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah, which is yeah, the, but it's a very Aristotelian like word, right? I mean, we talked before about how magnanimity was a very difficult virtue for Christianity to incorporate, yeah. right? And it, it, I mean, like because of Aquinas, it's brought over to <laughs> the Italian. But um, I think you're right that that Dante is playing with the distinctions between ancient and modern, and that allows him to in hell treat some characters with so much respect don't you think if farinata had lived in the pre-christian era he probably would have been so he sought honor above all he probably would have been in limbo right but it's the fact that he had access to the truth right he knew what he ought to worship but chose to value the city-state above that that he ends up with the heretics right Plato and Aristotle are also heretics, but they're not heretics in the sense of denying the truth because they didn't have access to it. Right? I, I think it's different than that, though, because Farinata's particular sin is not believing that the soul is immortal if Hollander's notes are to be believed. Mm-hmm. Whereas from a Christian perspective, Plato and Aristotle were theologically correct, but lacking in revelation. Therefore, they're in limbo. Whereas Farinata was was an actual proper heretic across all time. So which is why he's lumped in with Yeah, um, but so what I don't curious or whatever. Go ahead. Yeah, but what I what I don't like about that reading, Greg, is that yeah, he's associated with Epicurus, and the footnote tells us that he didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. But if you look at his speech, right, he doesn't talk about the immortality of the soul. Right. Remember, he comes up and the first thing he says is, What's going on in Florence? Mm -hmm. Right. Like if you look at the, the character arc, what I really think it's obvious that Dante's trying to reveal about the character is that this character valued the fate of the city state more than the glory of God. Like, I think the characterization of him all points towards that. I don't think there's really any evidence besides the fact that he's among the Epicureans, that he's thinking a lot about the immortality of the soul, but right. If he, if he doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul, right. It would follow that he would invest way too much, time and energy in the political realm right because he doesn't recognize that it's temporal compared with something that's eternal that it's transient so i don't think they're actually totally disconnected Um, but i think what dante is trying to show us there is that farinata is in some way i would say he's idolizing the temporal right and neglecting the eternal i think i think that's certainly right But, but julius caesar probably did that too but he's in limbo because, because it, it, you know, in Romanitas, right, immortality is being talked about forever, but 
I don't think Romanitas is thinking about the afterlife or anything in the Christian sense of the word. No. Sorry. It's just opening up like a, a whole trove of questions for me, though. So like one of them is like, you know, with regard to the status of homosexuality as a sin, it seems that undeniable that Dante treats everyone who commits the sin of homosexuality as like people who are great, right? Like he reveres them and honors them and respects them, but he puts them in hell. And to me, that looks like he's explicitly acknowledging that there are sins that somehow like aren't against the, maybe this is even to your point, Elijah, I'm, I'm just hard to formulate this. There are sins that aren't against the mark of your person, but are somehow still damn, damnatory. Damnable. Damnable. Thank you. And it seems like the question is because of the paradoxes with like, um, is, you know, is, is who's the queen of Carthage? Dido. I so Dido. So the so the question is is Dido a suicide or a lover, right? She's with uh -huh. the lovers. Or a luster. Luster, yeah. right? Um uh and because there is this essential aspect of sin that the the realm you're punished is for your essential deed, that then makes me think that if someone is like that, or like Farinata, they're in the heretical realm. And I think you're right, Elijah, right? He somehow is putting the state over immortality, but it's his essence to put the state over immortality in a way that's different than, in a way that's different than the pagans who, mm. who praise the state, but don't, who, who like cling to the immortality, but can't form, form it. I don't know. Well, the sort of two thoughts. I mean, the question on the table, right, is to what degree does the era that you live in matter? And so from a sort of medieval Christian point of view, there's really just two eras, right? There's there's BC and AD, right? And if you, they, I think if you live before Christ, you're judged differently. And if you live after Christ, you're judged differently. And I think there's a sort of, I think implicit in Dante, there's this sort of idea that like, if you're living in 13th century Florence, right, which is the heart of Christendom, you have a different sort of accountability or responsibility than if you live in, in fifth century Athens. And so, and that kind of goes to the idea of like actually particularity and universality because fundamentally, right, if revelation is, a, is the epistemological category, right, then like, Socrates, right, living before the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right, is in like a categorically different sort of world than the 13th century Florentine who has the New Testament, who has the Revelation. I, th I think and, that's right. And, 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 right, to circle around, that's my question is like, if Farinata had lived before Christ, I actually think he probably would have been more likely to have been a noble pagan. I'm tempted to agree with that, but then I think about like what the status, well, to me, I guess the question of how literally does Dante take Aquinas's line that through reason we are capable of, of attaining God's knowledge of God, but is through revelation that it's like simply, you know, more efficient or easier. I can't remember that what it is, how he first phrases it, but, but that uh -huh. Aquinas seems to take it quite literally that 
a person can attain full knowledge of God without revelation. Full, not, no, there's no way he says full knowledge of God. No, but they, 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 they're in terms of like what are the theological principles? They, they, he doesn't understand anything about Christ, but in terms of like they can live their lives uh-huh. in such a way that they believe in God, one God. Well, that's God's that's immortal. true. That's what I mean. The characteristics yeah, yeah. of God, not the so, Trinity. So uh, Paul, right? It's Romans one that Paul says, right? Through nature, two things are evident about God: his power and his divine nature, right? And that's the whole basis of like natural theology, which is what can be known from God outside of revelation. Right. But yeah, you can't know the Trinity. You can't know Christ. Obviously you can't sure. necessarily know atonement, that, that kind of stuff. But I think that's, re- that's really crucial with respect to the status of the universality of God's presence, which is why uh-huh. it justifies the damnation of the pagans in a really important way, which is that they could have, had that access to god and some turned away from it and some did yeah. not and i think yeah, that implies that caesar had to have believed theologically correctly the nature of god and that he ultimately was not someone who put the city above god and i think the justification of that is is his search for immortality within rome not immortality for you know like he, he somehow understood that rome is the immortal city So here, I'm just going to read the text of Romans just to put on the table. So this is verses 18 through 20. Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, that goes to your point, Greg, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I don't necessarily think it follows that Caesar acknowledged God's eternal power and divine nature. I don't know. I have to think about that. Does he believe that Zeus is ultimately the one true ruler God? Uh-huh. I think, I think the answer is that Dante thinks yes, or, or maybe Dante fudges it. You know, within this, yeah, yeah, yeah. within the character of the poem, though, it seems like Dante treats the idea of Caesar as king, as a model of God as king, uh, and you know, like that paradigm. And and Caesar is like comfortably well within that, where it seems like uh-huh. Farinata doesn't do that in a way that even is not naturally theologically proper, and that because Harris is kind of an interesting problem right i think because the way it's treated here is that it's a question of intention versus action or something it's a question of uh belief yeah it's a question of belief i guess i guess uh, maybe this is more a more general question for someone to be heretical do they have to hmm, there have to be a mismatch between their beliefs and their what they really believe and what they say they believe like that that's not no that's that's hypocrisy that's hypocrisy they're not blasphemers right uh-huh i mean well blaspheming is like cursing god yeah yeah, yeah. Right? So, I mean, that's a difference so yeah so i can believe the soul is mortal and that's not the same as like what job's wife wants him to do right curse god and die blasphemers <laughs> think god exists they just try to resist him whereas whereas heretics are like oh it's it's moot point there's no god 
So it's a, oh, so it's exclusively a question of belief. Then, I guess. Right. Yeah. Do do you hold in your soul the true natural theology? Not just natural, but do you if you right. if you well, have access to it? Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think about the the, the juxtaposition of of uh, Farinata and Capiconti in the same tomb, right, or in the same and, and within the same place in the poem. And I guess you could just say they just they both were just privileging life on Earth, and they had they had all their hopes and dreams invested in in that in one way or another. I don't know it feels a little easy to say that I guess, but maybe that's feels too obvious or something. I don't know. I just well, what's actually interesting about that, Adam, is arguably both of these men intellectually or let's plausibly, quite plausibly, both of these men intellectually assented to Catholic doctrine, mm-hmm. right? And probably went to church on Sundays. It's so the question is, the, the question is, is heresy a matter of intellect or is it a matter of affect? Because both mm-hmm. of these men would have assented to Catholic doctrine and said, God is most important, whatever, right? But in terms of their loves, right? In terms of their affect, in terms of what they were oriented towards, in terms of that which gave their life meaning, they were, you know, uh, Cavalcanti is oriented towards his son and his son's success and his son's fame and so on and so forth. And then Farinata is oriented towards the fate of the city. And mm-hmm. so there's actually is probably a disjunction in what they profess to believe. And then what in practice, I mean, it's the whole thing that Jesus says in the gospels, right? Don't store up for yourself treasures in heaven or don't store, don't store up for yourself, excuse me, treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal, where moth and rust destroy, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Mm -hmm. So the heart of both these men is not with God. And that's what makes them heretics, maybe more than any sort of intellectual error. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking more like, I mean, yes, I agree with you. So the disjunction is interesting because it's not that you say that you believe one thing and do something else right i mean it is kind of like that but it's not and it's almost not like there's like an intentional lie about it or something it's like you maybe even believe that you believe something but like your actions reveal the truth of your character in a way that your words and perhaps even your own uh you know your own like self you know narrative of your beliefs doesn't or something well, yeah, we could we could imagine a politician saying, uh, "I'm campaigning for the sake of my family because my family is most important to me." Yes. Right? They might really believe that, but they spend 300 days a year on the road fundraising, and neglecting their family. And we go, you know, they might not see the it might not be conscious conscious hypocrisy, but it is a sort of disjuncture, and yeah, their actions betray that what's most important to them is actually their political career, not their family something like that right mm-hmm. is that kind of what you're thinking yeah it's just hard it's hard to to me it's hard to separate that so there is a significant place in the politics and the theology of Dante as it's like sort of presented so far in the poem for a for like a strong and active leader you know it's just really hard for me it's really hard I think it's really tricky to say what that kind of a leader would look like 
if a, an active and successful leader like Farinata, who's also magnanimous, you know, is also damned. What the ideal leader is, what their qualities are, how we separate them from a, from a heretic in this sense seems like a very difficult and very fine distinction. Mm -hmm. But it's also a city of God, city of man sort of distinction, right? Jesus is the ideal leader and uh, his movement, right? He's crucified, mm -hmm. right? He's assassinated. Uh, he has a little small group, 12 followers, never gets mm -hmm. off the ground, right? And uh, the sort of the paradox of it is that, right, his, his death brings life. I do think, though, the Catholic move is to say, even though Jesus himself was unsuccessful, the church has realized the sufficient political and pragmatic power to realize the kingdom of heaven for all through its through its political motions. Like I think that especially in I th medieval I, theology, yeah. it seems I, like yeah, I think that's a somewhat fair characterization of of some of the tendencies, but I I don't think it's self-evident that Dante is endorsing that tendency. I think he's being critical of it. And I'd offer as a first piece of evidence that how many popes there are in hell and clerics, right? Everywhere. So so Dante is not at least unthinkingly endorsing that tendency, though I, though I agree with you, Greg, that that tendency exists in medieval Catholicism, at least as I understand it. I don't know, though, because I really, so I think, I think certainly you're not wrong that many, many popes and high political figures in Rome invert the thing. But I think he views them as like basically selfish people in the sense where it's like they, they get off the train. But I think he thinks of political power is a very real instrument of God's will. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that seeking political power is utterly just and a necessary part of revelation which is why he has no problem with this kind of like politicking and why it's an important part of him figuring out the, the universal paradigm. I think, he, like, I think, he, I think he thinks of political power as a new nature, right? Like after God creates the universe and sets it up, then God sets up the cities and then they go and act God's will. Yeah. What, what do you mean when you say political power is part of revelation? I think in Catholic theology, the way that God's will is spread to the world is not only through like the, the story and the narrative of Christ, but through the actual political machinations of the church. Like I think the, the idea of a universal empire and the Catholic church becoming that is a very important concept to Dante and Catholics in general and the medieval era, especially. Well, and that, I mean, that has to do with the fact that, right, Christianity is historical, right? Like, for Dante, it was part of the divine plan that Augustus came along, not for the sake of Augustus, but for the sake of Rome, or for right. the sake of, of uh, the papacy, right? Well, I think um, that, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think that Dante legitimately believes in a second Rome, and a second Roman Empire that will be led by a like a christian emperor in a way that the mm -hmm. first was not and certainly not the holy roman empire of the north like he thinks he wants it to come from italians and etc but sure i mean the thing i have a hard time i, I will have to keep reading and tracking 
and I guess I'll just acknowledge a few forces at play here. I think that the thrust of, I think the internal mechanism, and I guess this is a very sort of post-enlightenment thing to say. I think the internal mechanisms of Christianity as presented in the gospel make the separation of church and state to be a natural thing, like a sort of inevitable conclusion, though that, that obviously isn't achieved when Dante's writing this, right? It won't be achieved for a long while. And so I, I guess I have that sort of prejudice to say, well, it's obvious that the political realm shouldn't be the primary, the political machinations shouldn't be the primary aspect of spreading the gospel. And I'm going to acknowledge that as my own bias. But the other thing, I just have a hard time thinking that like Dante wouldn't be a little bit more circumspect about it, like in light of like Augustine and City of God and what all the early church fathers are writing about. Like, I don't think he's plainly a Christian nationalist in the sense that Rome and, or Italy and Christian destiny are identical. I think he thinks they're intertwined in some way. And I think he thinks they're more intertwined than Christians today tend to think about state and the kingdom of God. But uh, yeah, I mean, it sort of feels to me like the way you're presenting it, Greg, feels like a little bit ham-fisted and I'm, I'm sort of expecting more sophistication from Dante, but I guess that's not really, really an argument. It's just a sort of yeah. gut feeling. I, I can see why you'd feel that way. To me, I feel like Dante is writing from the perspective of like a, a fallen era. Like he doesn't think that anyone in Rome is actually capable of this. But I do, I really do think that he that he's writing with an eye to politics because he does believe in that kind of project um, and the, the the actual value of political and i i really doubt that he has any belief in the value of separating church and state except for the fact yeah, yeah. that the functions of priests are literally different than the functions of politicians uh-huh well and i didn't i don't i didn't mean to suggest that he would have that sort okay. of idea in mind but i think i wanted to say that the tension between god's the unfolding of god's plan and political projects the tension is clearly evident in the gospels Right, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's, right? Being the primary example of that. And I, I just want to think that Dante is going to wrestle with those kind of ideas in a sophisticated way. I think that's true. And certainly I think there's a tension here, right? Like Italy has failed to create a new Christian empire. Um, uh, and it doesn't look like, I don't think Dante believes that anyone is going to come soon at all. Um, but I think that Dante does think that that is prophesied or something, some kind of equivalent thing is ne- is a necessary part of history. Mm. What? Um, <laughs> so hell is really well organized and it's a city. And even within the city of hell, there's also in like in Canto 18, there's Malbage, right? Which is kind of a, uh, like a fortress or something within the, within the city of hell. You think that reflects the, the political character of like is hell the the opposite of what a well you know what i mean is hell like the metaphysical opposite of what a well-ordered civilization would look like i mean there's a very like political quality to hell i think that's true especially in light mm-hmm. to to the absence of a apparent political quality in heaven mm-hmm. right like 
like heaven is way more natural than hell is mm-hmm. political i'll get there when we get there I, yeah i do think that troubles the conflation of the politics and the divine or the re- of politics and revelation but to me it seems like it's a difference of um what do you do when you're alive and what do you do when you're dead or something like that and it seems like the people in hell believe that they're still in the city when they're dead and they don't have a rigorous difference between what you do when you're alive and what you do when you're dead. Whereas, whereas Dante really does believe there's a difference in what you do when you're dead versus alive. Right. Hell, is, that, hell is the ideal is the ideal city with all of God's love removed. <laughs> all the grace. Yeah. Well, and, and the, yeah, and the, it's, it's literally living forever in a, in a concrete way, right? Like the, the kind of life that you want to live, you live that forever. Whereas mm-hmm. heaven, you're, you're transformed in death in a very, very important way. You don't live the same life. Right. Well, that's the whole thing behind the contrapassos of the sins is that, right, you, you made your bed and now you lie in it, right? If you lived in a wrathful way, you just your wrathfulness is extended into all eternity and that's the torment, right? The sign, the sign over the gate of hell, justice moved my maker on high, divine power made me wisdom supreme and primal love, right? So like the order of hell, I mean, the the orderliness of hell, we could conceive of in a way, if, if we assume that Dante thinks God is sort of the epitome of order and like that justice is also a sort of orderliness right each thing getting its due right the orderliness of hell is actually a could be read as evidence of the divine presence right if god were to totally withdraw it'd just be total chaos right but because he cares about justice even in hell each person has their proper place the place according to their that accords with their character yeah, it's it's love, right? Is of granting each one the way they are, that they are, right? And in, yeah, in a really Aquinas sense, it's the ultimate act of affirming free will. It's letting each person be as completely free to be unto themselves. I think that's certainly true. Oh shoot, I was going somewhere. Oh, that was it. But the yeah, I'm re- I'm really starting to see this transformation thing more of like. The, the 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 revelation of revelation is is in that way like love where you, you stop and you you you're living one way and now it is a totally different life that is for you and obviously like it has to happen in life for christians via baptism um and the eucharist etc but m- like more significantly or like like poetically for dante it's it's very tied to death um well purgatory right purgation is the transformation you're talking about yes Mm -hmm. exactly so we haven't directly talked about any of these cantos at all which is fine do we want to uh yeah i think i was actually about to say we should um someone should i guess alex if you want to direct us to a passage that you want we wanted to read i think we kind of got away from the question. Well, why don't you restate your opening question and direct us to a passage that we can discuss? Sure. Let's, um, I'll just read the, uh, the three whirling Florentine fellows in hell. Uh, 
Yes, so they they join the three of them into a ring, and they're they're kind of wheeling around because their torment is about like constant motion. They're like constantly running through the hot sands of hell. So then one begins to speak. If the squalor of the shifting sand and our blackened hairless faces puts us and our petitions in contempt, let our fame prevail on you to tell us who you are, who fearless move on living feet through hell. He in whose steps you see me tread, though he go naked, peeled hairless by the fire, was of a higher rank than you imagine. He was grandson of the good Gualdrada, Guido Guerra was his name. In his life he did much with good sense, much with the sword. This other, squinching and behind me, is Tegiao Aldebrandi, whose voice deserved a better welcome in the world. And I, who am put to torment with them, was Jacopo Rusticucci. It was my bestial wife, more than all else, who brought me to this pass. Had I been sheltered from the fire, so this is Dante uh, speaking to us. Had I been sheltered from the fire, I would have thrown myself among them. And I believe my teacher, Virgil, would have let me. But because I would have burned and baked, fright overcame the good intentions that made me hunger to embrace them. And then he begins to talk to them. So this moment where he wants to throw himself in among these three and embrace them, it just seems like a strange moment to me. I mean, these are Florentine figures who are like renowned in the city and I guess did good for the city. I mean, if you read, I read the note, so it's like they did well for the city. So they're respected in the context of Florentine politics, but they had this sin. And so they are condemned to torment in hell for their sin. And the sin is is like unnatural lust, right? Yeah, it's yeah. I guess sodomy, homosexuality, however they mm-hmm. however it's interpreted, yeah. Well there there almost seems implicit in this. This isn't the first moment Dante's kind of had such a expression. There seems almost implicit in this a divide between the private and the public, the domestic and the political. Because essentially it's like, well, these guys in their bedroom behind the cover of closed doors did these things that were unnatural and therefore they're in hell. But in the public realm, this doesn't seem to have affected their political contributions at all. And at least as far as Dante the Pilgrim is concerned and Virgil, it's like, well, yeah, they probably shouldn't have been doing that. They probably shouldn't have been sodomizing either their wives or other men. But they're overall guys that I admire. I mean, that's just a starting reading of that, which is less about the Florentine and more about the sort of apparent tendency to, I would say, make a hierarchy where political sins are treated as more gravely than personal foibles that don't seem to affect the political. Do you feel like there's anything anything like psychologically novel 
that we haven't encountered before with these characters. So I feel like uh, one of the one of the things that Arbach I say he makes a point to talk about how compact all the characterizations are, and he draws out the the Cavalcanti and the um, Farinata, but he makes a claim about how he, every character you encounter in Hell has some kind of like unique psychological dynamic that isn't just a repetition of something you've seen before. Like, what do you, if you if you if that's true? I'll tell you that's true. What do you, what would can we like say what that is for these guys? It doesn't seem obvious to me that that's, that's yeah. true with them. But. So I'm going to frame it this way. Lines 29 to 45 are really only a characterization of Jacobo, right? Mm-hmm. It's him speaking. So I think the question is, what does this speech reveal about him as a character in sort of bracketing this Guido and Aldo Brandi character who don't say anything, right? But they're just described by... Jacobo Rustiki. The squalor of the shifting sand and our blackened hairless faces put us and our petitions in contempt. So in other words, if you're tempted to not take us seriously because of the circumstances, let our fame, let our earthly record prevail on you to tell us who you are, who fearless, who fearless move on living feet through hell. So he in whose steps you see me tread Though he go naked, peeled hairless by fire, was of a higher rank than you imagine. So if we just look at these first three stanzas, two two things stick out to me, just as a starting point. The first thing is Rusticucci's sort of tendency is to say, you might see this, but there's actually something else going on. You might see this, but there's actually something else going on, right? You see this guy naked, peeled hairless by the fire, which is kind of like a comic image, right? It almost feels like a cartoon. But he was really of a much higher rank than you imagine. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, if correct me if I'm wrong, but this Rusticucci would be these three men who are tied together and rolling around, which maybe ask what that has to do with their unnatural desires. But these three men who are rolling around like this seem like the first group of people that we've met who basically seem to get along with each other in some way. We don't seem to have contempt for each other. So uh, if you think about Cavalcanti and Farinata, right, they live in the same tomb, but they're not friends. They ignore each other almost completely. Almost, they don't even acknowledge each other's existence, right? And this, if we are to believe Rusticucci, right, these three men get along pretty well. That would seem pretty unusual in hell. It seemed pretty idiosyncratic because I would say overall, right, the, I would characterize hell, or I'd characterize sin as disintegrating community. And hell, right, the deeper you get, the more disintegrated community is, right? So if we think about the limbo, right, people are walking around talking. Then we think about uh, Francesca. Think about Francesca, her and the lover, at least are in the same realm. But then it seems like people are sort of drifting farther and farther apart. And then we get to this Kanto and it seems like, oh, these three guys, not only are they stuck together, but they seem to enjoy each other's company. Again, if Rustacucci is to be believed, but it is strange that none of the other, neither of the other two speak. I'm going to stop there. That was a lot. But any thoughts or yeah. responses? These three are running together, as they say. I don't know. Somehow they are, because they're from the same city, somehow happen to be positioned in their circle of hell where they are running 
at the same speed in the same direction mm -hmm. in close proximity. So they are certainly advantageously positioned in terms of the narrative, like to have to have these three in close proximity. It's definitely worth wondering about. It's also a useful device for, for Dante who's sure. writing the poem. So he arrives, he hears a waterfall, and then it says, starting in line four, when three shades at a run broke from a passing crowd under that rain of bitter torment, together they came towards us, together as one, each one calling. So here all three of them are speaking. Stop you, who by your garb appear to be a man from our degenerate city, yeah. collective ownership of Florence. Oh, what sores I noticed on their limbs, both old and new ones branded by the flames it pains me still when i remember them my teacher was attentive to their cries then turned his face to me and said now wait to these one must show courtesy why is that is it because their sin was private and not public is it because they're florentines is it because they're men of fame and were it not for the fire that the nature of this place draws down i would say that haste suits you far more than it does them that makes no sense. Suits you. Why would Dante need to be hurrying rather than them? When we stopped, they yeah, took up again. I didn't understand that one. Yeah. I'm going to just keep reading a little bit more. When they stopped, yeah. when we stopped, they took up again. When we stopped. So Virgil was saying, if it wasn't for the flame, haste would suit you more than them. But instead of hurrying, they actually stopped. When we stopped, they took up again their old refrain which would be stop you who by your garb appear to be a man from our degenerate city. Once they reached us, all three had joined into a single wheel. So they were part of a crowd and then they broke off from that crowd. Uh, apparently, theoretically, a crowd of sodomites or something. They broke off from that crowd and then they run. And then as one, they call out to Dante and then they join into a wheel and what's the wheel like? It's as combatants, oiled and naked, are wont to do. So think like the Olympics, watching for their hold and their advantage before the exchange of thrusts and blows. So this is wheel of like people in a grappling position. Mm -hmm. and they're rolling together, wheeling. Each fixed his eyes on me, so that their feet move forward where the necks were straining back. I'm not sure even what that means. Dante's in one spot. And you just imagine like three people, uh, if, if it was something like a circle dance or, or even, you know, just like each has their hand on the other two's shoulders. So they have to keep moving. And so they're like moving their circle in one direction, but they all want to be looking at Dante. So you'd be like moving your head. And then as your body's moving around, mm -hmm. you have to like, have your neck turned in one position and then you have to turn it the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they seem to have a lot kind of things. It's like it's almost like a uh, it's like a loophole within the logic of their punishment or something, right? It's like right? punishments have to move ceaselessly and they can't stay in one place. But if they get together in this way, they can kind of stay in one place for a while, you know, mm -hmm. long enough to have a conversation with a stationary being. But it's like mm. their punishment itself allows for loopholes. 
it seems like there's may, several times we've seen noble people somewhat avoid the punishment of hell. Farinata. Or mi- mitigated at least. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure, certainly. Jason. Um, can't remember a couple others, but they can just simply withstand the torments in a way that that indicates some insight or nobility within themselves. And I think that's to point out that like, it's really hard to tell what Dante is doing here and without an enormous amount of background cultural context, but it is clear that, that he thinks that their virtue is, is, and Virgil concurs, it seems is undiminished by their position in hell. They, they, in some ways, they have to have done nothing. Yeah, I don't know. I think what's so tricky, I see what you're saying, Greg, and I'm actually inclined to agree. I think what's so tricky about all of this is that, so if we think about Francesca, right, there's two ways to read that. I think Francesca is a much easier case than this one. So if you look at Francesca's speech, right, it's like, what I feel like you're supposed to take away from it is, oh, she's completely self-deceived. She's kind of delusional. She's kind of, she's rhetorically savvy, but she's not truthful, right? And Dante the Pilgrim totally falls for her, let's say, act. And so the point of that canto is um, this woman who went to hell for lusting and sleeping with her husband's brother has gotten to hell and has learned nothing, right? But she's so rhetorically adept that when she gets an audience, she can trick that audience into seeing her in this really favorable light. And so at the end of the day, if I think if you read Canto 5 carefully, you're not meant to pity Francesca, but you're supposed to see, oh, Dante the Pilgrim is quite naive. He totally gets taken by this this woman's story, this woman's self-presentation. So then we move forward. and, And if we were to take that formula here, right, we could say, oh, Dante the Pilgrim sees these men and they present themselves. And he has this, he brings this idea of who they are and he totally misses something essential, which causes him to pity them. That reading actually kind of seems hard to sustain, but that would be like one framework you could bring. The second framework, um, and I don't even know how to adjudicate these, but I do think it's worth articulating. The second framework is something like Dante the poet, right, is wrestling with the theological realities of hell and the fact that these great men that he knew who had this sin would be there and he thought like okay what would a noble man look like in hell and in what way would you know and he's a great lover right Dante's a great lover and so he would have loved these political figures right and in what way would whatever was good in them be untouchable by the punishments of hell untouched by the punishments of hell right how, how can a noble person go to hell and what does that look like at least noble in some one or more respects. And so the question is, is Dante the pilgrim sort of pushing against orthodox theology and trying to find find how orthodox theology and orthodox theology and the complexities of reality work together? Or is Dante the pilgrim just totally delusional about what he's seeing? And so he has pity for people who, if he were more holy, he wouldn't have pity for. I think I've stated my point, so I'm going to stop there. And I apologize for talking a lot tonight. Yeah, it's very hard to to distinguish it. I'm I'm inclined to the the second one because um, 
because of the essentializing of sin or something like that, it seems like Christianity, at least as Dante is representing, is fully capable of depicting a noble person in hell. But it is, it is a subtle, especially also with Virgil. I take took the lines that Virgil supported Dante's embrace of them or attempted embrace of them, literally. Like I thought that was a, a reflection of Dante the poet understanding what reason as Virgil was capable of deciding. And it yeah, seems, but it's human reason, which yes, is limited. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which, which is separate from revelation or something like that. But basically like sin is, is, sin is clearly essential in a way that no amount of political virtue can get around. Which is to say, Christianly speaking, who you are matters more than what you do. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, because there's a secret thing that you yeah. began for. Which is totally in line with the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, you're guilty mm -hmm. of adultery. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. I say, if you look at your brother with hate in your heart, right? So, right, the, the shift, which I said a couple of weeks ago when we were talking, the shift is from actions to the condition of, to an internal sort of question. In terms of heresy or something, is it that the actions reveal what the inner state of the person knows to be, or does it reveal what it, what it is truly? Do you see what I mean? Does it, is it necessary for a heretic to know that they're a heretic, or is it only necessary for their actions to be like disaligned with what they think they believe, according to, according to the, pers the, the perspective that the poet has on them. My, my inclination, Adam, and this is a weird way to go about it, maybe starting with Montaigne, but definitely by Rousseau and Nietzsche, right? There's a shift from truthfulness to honesty, which, right, what's the difference? Honesty is like, uh, you can't damn me for an honestly held belief, even if that belief is wrong, or authenticity, right, would be another word for that. And I don't think that that is operative here. I think the heretic, whether they sincerely, I mean, I think all heretics think they're proclaiming the truth. Yeah, I mean, they might know they're disaligned with the church, but they think they're aligned with the truth, right? And so I think most heretics are authentic or honest about their beliefs, but their beliefs are not truthful. That's if they're not aligned. You know, it's a correspondence theory of truth kind of thing. And I think that's more what Dante's, interested in yeah it's, it's weird though with the question of it's very it's so striking here with the question of someone who says like dante calls his own intentions to embrace them as good um he says that you know and with my good intentions or it's like, you know born of which is like your goodwill or something um he pities them and it's very hard to I like I, I I'm I'm so inclined to say, based on later statements, that that would have to be viewed ironically. But it feels so hard to sustain that reading of goodwill as ironic, because of how he treats the characters. But but that is the I mean that's the reality right of the self delusion we were talking about before we started recording. Except for the fact that reason itself is aligned with the self-delusion right so it's, it's yeah not a, but it's but, not a 
but reason can't get you into heaven just as right, the right, right. can't. But it, this is what I'm saying. It's not an object of failing, right? So that it's it's worse than the truth correspondence thing, where it's like objectively you could still conclude that it's good rather than a subjective failing. But there's this new element with Christianity that apart from objectivity, there is a secondary, completely private assessment of what is good or not. And that can lead somebody to be damned. Not assessment indicator. Right. But it's a, yeah, yeah. The, assess, the assessment of both is revelation. Yes. In terms yeah. of the, the metric. Right. But, but a second layer or level or plane. Yeah. It's like there's two objectivities now. Mm-hmm. The state of the heart and the state of the, the, yeah. Well, that's what Paul says, right? If I give up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Right. Right. Which they always read at weddings and it's like this terrifying passage about how everything you do might be worthless <laughs> if your heart's not right. Um, mm-hmm. But it's supposed to give us all warm fuzzies, you know, in the sermon. It's really striking here. I think this is where it's like Dante at his most Christian. It's really striking here. The difference between something like objective. I don't want to say truth because it does seem like, you know, Dante certainly gives truth to the status of God, but something like objective determinations are completely insufficient. They are, are are not, not are not insufficient. Sorry. Sorry. They are completely objective determinations are completely insufficient. You can be Mm -hmm. fully rational. um, And it doesn't, you're you're damned. Can I, can I keep reading? Yeah. Then I began not contempt, but sadness Fix your condition in my heart so deep. It will be long before it leaves me. The moment that my master's words made me consider that such worthy men as you were coming near. I am of your city. How many times I've heard your deeds, your honored names resound. And I too spoke your names with affection. I leave. So now he's describing his own journey. I think. I leave bitterness behind for the sweet fruits promised by my truthful leader. That's Virgil. But first I must go down into the very core of hell. They respond that your spirit long may guide your limbs. He now added and your renown shine after you. Tell us if valor and courtesy still live there in our city as once they used to, or are they utterly forsaken or have they utterly forsaken her? Guglielmo Borsieri Grieving with us here so short a time goes yonder with our company, makes us worry with his words. Uh, Dante responds, the new crowd with their sudden prophets they begotten have begotten you, Florence. Such excess and arrogance that you already weep. So it's apostrophe. He's, just, he's addressing Florence and he basically says, this new generation is not near as noble as these people I'm talking to now. This, my face uplifted, I cried out. And the three, taking it for an answer looked at one another as men do when they face the truth. What is the truth that they're facing? Well, that this project that they invested themselves in, the political good of Florence has not outlived them, right? They died and then Florence has gone to hell, right? If at other times it costs so little for you to give clear answers, they replied in turn, happy are you to speak so freely. This is the part I wanted to draw on. Therefore, so may you escape from these dark regions to see again the beauty of the stars when you shall rejoice in saying, I was there, see that you speak of us to others. 
Then they broke their circles. They fled. Their nimble legs seemed wings. Um, a man could not have been said as quickly as they vanished. Then my master thought it was time to leave. So it's interesting to me that they mention the stars there, right? They say, when you get out of here and you go look at the stars. And so, right, each of the three um, canticles, right? Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradiso all end with the word stars. And stars are essentially representative of the divine, of the transcendent, of that which is beyond, of that for which Dante aspires. And all of them sort of acknowledge the beauty of the stars in their speech with Dante, which seems to be really significant. I don't think any other sinner in hell has done that. Right. And so there is really a lot of complexity to these characters. Well, it's, it's, it's piled on, right? He says, amen could not have been said as quickly as they vanished, right? They have almost priestly status, right? And so it's very clearly not a Farinata type sin where they've replaced the city with, with the, the sense of the divine. It seemed like their political virtue was somehow aligned with divine activity in a way that for Farinata was not the case. Even though they, their political projects failed to outlive them, they see that, they recognize it, but, they, but they're not devastated by that in a way that seems like improper, right? They say, oh, that's really too bad, but we remember that there are the stars. Farinata can't remember that there's like daylight, you know? So I think it's someone uh-huh. else. In, when it's in inter- let me just, daylight. let me say one thing at the beginning, uh, but, or let me say one thing real quick before mm-hmm. you go on. And so they say, the first thing they say, stop you who by your garb appear to be a man from our degenerate city. So they're already calling the city degenerate right at the out at the outset so they already know that and it's interesting too what do they think made the city degenerate do they think it was there because like what i think we talked about this a couple weeks ago right but depending where on the bible you read right sodom and gomorrah were degenerate for two reasons one is the practice of sodomy right and that comes through in the genesis account but if you read in the prophets talks about how sodom and gomorrah basically neglected the poor were unjust in like sort of other ways, let's say, right? Oppressing the poor and that sort of thing. So it's interesting to think, well, why do they think the city's degenerate? Was it because of the sin that they're here for or was it for some other reason? It's, it's clearly not the sin they're there for because they state has courtesy and valor left, right? That's yeah. what they want most in recognizing in the city. And it seems like they're identified as possessing both courtesy and valor. And Dante, Dante replies, you know, it's all gone. Well, the question is, yeah. And the question again, to come back to what I was saying a couple minutes ago is this uh, Rusticucci, right? Is a sort of really elegant, almost host-like character, right? And to what degree is his sort of veneer of eloquence? Is it a veneer or is it like speaking to his true character? And that was what I was trying to get at with the parallel with Francesca. Yeah. So it seems like Dante has a clear idea of rhetoric, but he also has a clear idea of the positive sense of rhetoric, which in both poetry or in political speech. And it seems like their their prose, which I guess I guess is poetry because in inside a poem, but their way of speaking is is morally proper. What well, has a profound effect on the pilgrim, right? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the stars thing is like, what's strange about it? I mean, and this maybe gets to the complexity of 
gets to the complexity of what Dante's up to. Their speech, the fact that they mentioned the stars, the Dante the Pilgrim's response to them would indicate that they are in in some sense politically, morally, something superior to many of the sinners in in higher levels of hell. By higher, I mean less severe. Mm-hmm. And so what's and so like the calculation I want to do is like okay, if these are like better people in some way, shouldn't they be higher up? And shouldn't worse people be lower down? And it's strange to be this deep in hell and see, see people that seem to be admired this much. And really, I think all of what I've been trying to get at this whole hour and a half or whatever that we've been talking is like, what's up with that? That these noble <laughs> people are so far down. Yeah. There's, it seems to I've got two the pattern. Ways. Yeah. The, the one I frankly believe is that Dante didn't think homosexuality was was a sin, mm-hmm. right? Or it and wasn't that, a big big deal. Yeah, it didn't it didn't matter. Like, like I think he, he you know, like it's certainly one way to go. Dante doesn't believe that homosexuality yeah, yeah. is a sin at all, and he has to give homage to he, it. He though, feels he's, he feels bound by doctrine. We can't we can't publish the book, and I'll you know, yeah. and I I think he he does believe in. There's a kind of quasi-Straussian sort of esoteric reading to this. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to go yeah. too far down that yeah, road. Yeah. I think there's like a, a very honest one where it's like, because it's like we, we think of medievals as being very intellectually aligned, but it's frankly the case that they had just as diverse opinions regarding what the doctrines were yeah. um, as as we do today. You know. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so in some ways I think it's reductive to think that everyone believed that, you know, believed what the church said literally. No, so I, think, I, I would yeah. say, I think Dante, it seems to me that Dante felt that he had to grapple with it, that he couldn't dismiss it out of hand. He had to really the, wrestle with it. The sin. All the doctrines. Oh, I mean, yeah. all the doctrines just generally. Yeah. Um, right. And because I think he, you know, like, so, so option a, he doesn't believe in it at all. Um, and that he's just, he's paying homage to the people, but he knows that they didn't really sin. They are noble people. And he, but he can't express that in the poetry of a public facing poem. Option B is that he's committed to the tradition of the church, but is legitimately confused. And as far as his human reason is capable of taking him, he can't solve this problem, but he gives grace to the tradition and says they remain in hell because the church tells me so. And then the third option is the one I I just, as far as I can think, the one I have a harder time saying, which is that he legitimately believes that they are sinners and that he's been deluded on this. And there's some kind of like, you know, trick we're supposed to understand by reading this closely. Yeah. He, the, he, the pilgrim has yeah, been deluded. Is, is been yeah. deceived. And I, I, but I just don't know how to see that. I can't find yeah. that third option. And so I think it's either that as far as reason goes, Dante can't find homosexuality to be sin or that Dante legitimately in his heart of hearts thought it wasn't at all. And was, was, so it's either, you know, he's a public facing writer or he recognizes that as far as his reason can take him, it's not a sin, but he'll cede to the tradition because the tradition demands it as such. Right. Alex, what do you think? Oh, because, all right. So in arranging the circles of hell, is it 
Is it like a, was there like a doctrine that dictated how Dante would arrange the circles of hell? Mm-hmm. The seven deadly sins, right? The seven deadly sins. Yeah, and the intensity but they, of it. But they what? were, did they even have this ranking within yeah. the doctrine? Okay. It's, I believe so. so. It's taken from Aquinas, but yeah, in terms of okay. the idea of lesser and greater sins, for sure. So for the most part, the theology dictates how hell is arranged and presented to us in this book by Dante. Uh-huh. And so he's just taking uh, particular examples of his culture and saying, well, where would they be placed? And so these three fellows have to be placed here because they committed this sin against God. And so they're in this ring, this severe ring, but they're worthy people who did good things politically and did many good things in their lives. They just committed this uh, mortal sin. And so they're here. And that's what we've been wrestling with this whole time. Uh, (laughs) That's the thing we're wrestling with, with Dante. So we're trying to read like how Dante views the person versus the sin Mm -hmm. or what he thinks the merit of the doctrine is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the, I think in terms of the options Greg laid out, I think, I think those are a good way of thinking about it. And I think at the very least we can say, with homosexuality in particular, Dante seems to have really complex feelings about it, and he seems to be wrestling in real time in a way that he's not necessarily with other things, other sins. Like it, it does right. seem to oh, be like a, a uh, sort I mean, of added layer of complexity. And I, I try tend to, to right, like just trying to wrap this up. Um, in this reading, you have usury and flattery and those those sins are pretty they're they're depicted pretty graphically you know the the usurers are like completely devoid of their features because they've been burned so badly but they have these purses around their neck with their family coat of arms and they stare at their empty purses with the coat of arms And that's like the shred of identity that they have. And then the flatterers are just uh, in in shit. (laughs) They're just living in a pile of shit. Those don't seem to have the nuance like we find here is Mm. what I'm getting at. So I think I think we did well to try to unpack this moment in Canto 16. Well, it's interesting, too, if I'm not, because his teacher, right, was in the former canto. What was the teacher's name? Oh, the, yeah. the one he identifies as this poetical, because, yeah, we got a footnote that's not necessarily a brunetto. This is yeah. not necessarily his teacher, in fact, but but the uh, the man who he indebts to, the all who's also in the ring. But, he's, but he's, he's in, I mean, and there's lots of footnotes about, like, are the people... I mean, among the scholars, are the people here even here for homosexuality or is that a misunderstanding? So I'm going to presume, it kind of seems to me that that's pretty straightforward, not homosexuality, but actually sodomy more specifically. But 
he has really positive things to say about Brunetto, and then he has really positive say things to say about these three men. And it's interesting, right? So if you assume he receives the seven deadly sins from Aquinas, order of intensity, um, he can sort of choose to speed through or slow down with each one. And this whole question of the sodomizers uh, takes up a lot of airtime, right? He really chooses to slow down. And you meet essentially two characters, Brunetto and, and Rusticucci, right? You meet those two characters and then you learn about a couple more. So he definitely is like stopping down to try to work this, stopping, slowing down to try to work this out carefully. I don't think, and I think, I mean, my, this will be my last word on it. I think, I think Dante feels himself bound by the doctrine and he's sort of wrestling with it because it doesn't sit well with him and he's trying to figure out, okay, so how do these things work together? I don't think, I don't think he feels comfortable discarding it um, but he can't affirm it in an uncomplicated way so he's sort of trying to figure it out that's kind of my takeaway for what it's worth Mm -hmm. which maybe isn't much but no i I think that's fair i mean that's a fair i i really can't decide between the two options whether or not this is an ironic condemnation strictly or whether it's like one of ongoing struggle but i think you're definitely right as far as like a straight literal reading of the text would go it i mean he, the line about you know uh, his teacher would recommend that he commit himself to be among these men uh-huh. is is to me self-evident that at very least he's in or, or that he he's he is in a struggle with it and his, like the whole warning of the fire seems to be you know indicative of, of the warning of the tradition itself against something yeah, that's right. The tradition forbids this, but the, the individual wants to transgress it. And so yeah. in, some, in some sense, in real time, he's encoding his own wrestling with this particular prohibition. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, and the line about him needing to move faster than them. It seems like Dante is even identifying his own sin with homosexuality and sodomy, not necessarily that he was literally homosexual, but but that the level of self-identification with people in hell is far greater here than with the users where the users are like, you know, they're non-people like they're so worth they're, they're unrecognizable. Yeah. As humans. Yeah. Uh, and Dante just, you know, takes it as self-evident that it's a totally sinful base idiotic thing and just flies through it and spends mm-hmm. no time on it because not only do they get two sections, but you get the Brunetto, which is like, okay, he clearly, like that treatment of Brunetto is is in some ways actually quite harsh and con- condemnatory. condemnatory, condemnatory with respect to like the fact that he's this runner in last place and doesn't really get it. But then these three guys come up and within this the realm of virtue, these three are are on a, on a, even above Brunetto. Um, it seems with respect to their actual deeds and virtue, whereas like Brunetto is a brilliant poet or something but he who's a laggard in other respects but these three guys are just you know strictly good as far as reason can judge them then it also seems it also seems though that they're farther down in hell than brunetto because dante encounters them afterwards Mm -hmm. but then there's all sorts of questions of like why artistically would that make sense what sort of juxtaposition is dante hoping for which i right now don't have the inclination to really try to work out 
This is a hard. I thought these were a three hard cantos, particularly hard canty, canty. We're going to be Italian <laughs> about it. Yeah. Mm. Well, and another thing to say with respect to this, so I, th- I think this is a good. I mean, we've done a lot of like, structural things about like the tools Dante has available to him and stuff, and I, th- I think that's actually quite helpful going forward. But so it seems like Dante has obviously incredible freedom with respect to how he speeds up or slows. He also has it seems like effective, complete freedom with what he depicts the punishment as. And then another aspect of that is it does appear that logically strict, like strictly speaking, the deeper you are in hell, the worse the sin, or the further your damnation, et cetera, et cetera. But um, since he divides, you know, with people who are much worse sinners, like um, Jacob, not Jacob, um, Jason, Jason. Yeah. yeah, where where he is this completely regal thing, right? He, he's being whipped, etc. But he maintains his kingly stature. There is some kind of like aspect of, you know, I, I feel like this is true to life. The fact that you can do tremendous wrongs and still possess great virtues. Um, it seems like Dante is wholly comfortable in expressing that. Um, and he's not at all committed to the idea that if someone has done wrong, they are only in, they're only that thing, even though there is an, an enormous amount of essentializing with respect to sin and the status of these people. Uh, I think that's a good place to leave it unless you have any final thoughts, Alex. Yeah. Uh, just one thing that struck me is just like about Dante's task of writing this and, uh, you know, taking the structure of hell from theology and then trying to place particular figures in the circles, you know, as the writer, it's almost as if Dante has to pass God's judgment on these people. He has to, like, emulate the the God's judgment in in placing these people in the circles of hell. But I think what he's really brilliant in doing is is just like how he depicts the punishments and how he gives voice to these tormented souls so that it's not like Dante's just uh, giving us the doctrine with specific examples and and moralizing that way i mean he's really he's really painting uh, a brilliant picture of the afterlife for us and and uh obviously we have great opportunities to read the canto and then try to discuss these murkier bits uh, these mm-hmm. these moments that 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 uh cause us to question call us to question you know the meaning of the poetry that's a nice summative statement alex thank you for joining us in the quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies next week we'll be reading dante um dante's inferno 19 through 21 is that right yes good night good night